0: All right, this is Ricky, and this is Brendan, and you're listening to A Gentleman's Disagreement.
1: What I wouldn't give for hope I used to find in a case of lines, head. folks of different minds, because even though it did not share opinions, we share all that American idea. Friends made over arguments in an early morning buzz. Meet an early morning buzz.
0: All right, Brendan. Eight thirty in the morning. Another early one for you. Um, it's November the eleventh, Veterans Day. We've got quite a bit to go over the last week, week and a half or so. Um, what are we talking about this week?
2: Yeah, you know what's bad is that I. It feels late. <laughs> it's like it, it's it's almost eight thirty in the morning, and I'm like, man, it's. I slept in this morning. It's great. Uh, but happy Veterans Day to everyone out there. We know we have some veterans that uh, are listening or are kind of usual listeners and uh, people who have family members and friends that have served. And this is like one of those holidays that we talk about where we are excited to get there a little extra time to do some extra work or record a podcast. But um, hopefully, you and I and everyone else out there take some time to recognize and honor all of the veterans in our lives. Um, you know, Memorial Day is that day to celebrate the veterans who paid the ultimate sacrifice. But everyone that served the country has, has paid. Uh, you know, we we all owe all a debt, and so hopefully, we take a little time today to reach out to those people and, and keep them in our in our thoughts, um, especially uh, today. Uh, but with that said, like to your point, there's there's a lot that's happened in, in the last week. Um, the last episode that we had was previewing Election Day, particularly around the mayoral race in Boston, but the there were other elections going on last last Tuesday, particularly the, the governor's race down in Virginia, and we'll talk about that in, in some depth, and the governor's race in New Jersey a little bit, and the mayoral race here in Boston. So we'll do some like individual looks at the, those uh, elections, but also try to zoom out and see if we can come up with any trends or um, you know, kind of bigger takeaways from like the elections as a whole last Tuesday. Also, this past Friday night, the House finally passed the Biden infrastructure bill. Uh, this is something that we've talked about several times in this podcast. It's It's been really happening for the last like seven or eight months. Uh, was It's been the whole process, and uh, but it's finally been passed. And you know, I believe this coming Monday, Biden's going to sign it into law. So we'll talk about that for a little bit. Um, and then uh, in some kind of sadder news, but there are a couple of of deaths that that we wanted to uh, acknowledge over the past couple of weeks, and so um, we'll we'll do some reflection on a couple of people that have passed uh, recently. Um, so, like you said, it's it's a jam packed episode, but um, excited to talk about all these things. But Ricky, uh, as always, before we get into it, uh, we got to remind everyone that this podcast is is brought to you by the guys over at Cannon Hill Word Wordworking. They've been making handcrafted high end uh, tables and desks here in Boston since 2018. Uh, and, and Ricky. They, they sent me over a message this week.
0: What are they, what are they saying? All
2: right. They said that they're worried about discrimination in our banking system.
0: Are they now?
2: Yeah. yeah. And uh, I heard from, from their founder, he went into the bank the other day with a sack full of sawdust, uh, but he wasn't allowed to open a shavings account.
0: These guys, where do they come up with this stuff?
2: <laughs> uh, yep, but uh, if you are interested in getting uh, a great table or desk or something along those lines, you know, reach out to the guys over at Cannon Hill Woodwork. You can find them on Instagram at ww uh, at, um, find them on Instagram at Cannon Hill Wood or online at www.cannonhillwood.com. com. Uh, let them know that we sent you.
0: Holidays are right around the corner. You know, nothing says "I love you, Dad" like a nice new table. Exactly. <laughs> All right well, when we return we'll, uh, we'll get cracking here
1: Sweet Virginia this all just a game Oh tell me my darling. Oh tell me what part I should play So
2: we're going to start by looking at the results from the Virginia election. And the reason that Virginia is seen as such an important election is that it's a a quote unquote off year election, which means it falls in between the year of the presidential election and the midterms for the, for Congress. And so it's one of the few national elections that, you know, can give like the first sign of how things are going for the party in, in power. And so in this case, the Biden administration was you know really looking at this as a chance to like see if if the momentum that the you know Democrats had potentially gained um uh, through capturing the presidency last year was was still going and Republicans are kind of looking at it in the same manner looking at like all right Republicans did better in Congress last year than people expected are we got are Republicans going to keep like those same go- uh, kind of gains and momentum happening in Virginia and the president quite unusually actually invested a lot of time and resources and energy into this Virginia gubernatorial race. Like to his credit, it wasn't like a hands off, like, we'll see what happens. Like they really, you know, in- invested in this race and and they made it clear that it, m- it meant a lot to them. And you know, Biden was out there holding rallies and he, had, he dispatched his people and they were doing uh, fundraisers. Like pretty much everyone was, was pulling for the democratic candidate, who is this man named Terry McAuliffe, who's a longtime fixture in, Uh, democratic politics in general and in virginia in particular he was facing off against um, glenn youngkin who was a businessman a first-time candidate and so kind of like big picture wise with virginia it's it it has become a battleground state in in the 21st century Uh, it used to be pretty staunchly republican it became you know a little more blue under like during the Obama administration or like the, in those elections. And then uh, Biden won the state by 10 points last year, a pretty convincing victory in a state that was seen as purplish. And so a lot of people are forecasting that Virginia had become a little bit more of a blue state. Uh, obviously uh, that's not quite true. And Virginia is, is firmly purple as we can see from the results from last week. So uh, the Republican Glenn Youngkin defeated uh, the Democrat, Tim McAuliffe by two points uh, in, in the race last week. And it's, it's a big deal. I I guess the question is like, how, how big a deal is it?
0: Yeah, I, I think that is definitely the right question. It's, it is interesting, the variety of takes that you, that you saw sort of in the, in the headlines, right? Following the election, like Democrats getting clobbered, this is the end of the world. This is like, clear, uh, rebuke of, you know, everything that Biden's been doing and what's going on in Washington trickling down to Virginia. Um, and, and just like the, the, like the, the variety of reasons for it, it's, you know, Republicans winning the culture war or, or whatever. I, I don't think that this is a huge deal. Massachusetts, true blue, Massachusetts, we've had a Republican governor for like, ever, minus like a few years of Duval Patrick. I think what it's really more emblematic of is a a broader issue. And I mean, and certainly we'll get into like some of the progressive policies or platforms that may have been detrimental to Terry McAuliffe. But I think at the end of the day, when I see these results in Virginia, I see not people who are like totally, you know, who have become totally different people since Biden was elected by 10 points in last November. But kind of the broader problem of the progressive movement is that a lot of people believe in the ideals, but are not necessarily interested in like seeing it change their lives, you know, in their backyard, the, the NIMBYism type of thing. I think we see that in a lot of Very, very like blue cities and states that vote reliably blue on federal elections, but then come to um, come to their own neighborhood. And it's a little bit it's a little bit different. I don't know. How are you reading
2: things? A little bit different because people like want like realistic policies that are good for like their families yeah i think that that makes a lot of sense i totally agree with that uh and when it's like not out there we can do like high in the sky like all right this is this gonna affect me but like that seems like a good idea in theory yeah that seems like the progressive movement yeah totally writ large i totally agree with that uh i i I, mean, I, I, don't, I don't no. i mean i what i what i
0: think i am seeing and it is it is true a lot of the policies that progressives are pushing forward would require sacrifices from the people who are doing well today and that is a like it is totally as you were saying like it's very easy to say sign me up for equality but then when someone's like okay but not you know like you have more than everybody else so we have to take what you have and and, like do something with it. And then you're like, well, wait a minute. I said like equality over there.
2: <laughs> yeah, no, I know. it's a, and I, I, want, I think that's a really interesting theme to, to thread a lot of these through a lot of these elections. So I, I definitely want to come back to that. So I, I want to dig into the, the race and the policies a little bit more because um, as, as you kind of alluded to, Youngkin ran uh, a really interesting race. And I I do think in this is one of the things where, of course, all strategists on both sides are going to be looking for this as a blueprint on on either what to do or what uh, for the Democrats, like how to attack this in in the midterms next year. Because I think one way you could read the 10-point Biden Biden victory last year in Virginia was that this was a repudiation of Trump, less than it was like an endorsement of Biden and so what Youngkin did fairly effectively, it seems, is that he distanced himself from Trump. Like he didn't make, you know, Trump and Mega like the center of his campaign at all. He ran on issues that he felt were uh, important to Virginians, and particularly he centered education as as like his his big thing and education. Of course, like in the news, and we've talked about this previously, like critical race theory is like the the buzzword that's in the streets. And he definitely alluded to it, but he kind of meant education more broadly in terms of like some of the masks mandates that a lot of parents aren't thrilled with. And some of like the vaccine mandates and some of the school closures for over the past year and um, critical race theory, of course, but also like school choice, which has been a traditionally like Republican belief. And so like education, when you can kind of center that as your campaign and let people take with it take from it, like what they want, I think is really effective where you can say like the people out there that are like really anti-critical race theory can latch on to Yunkin, but you can also latch on to him if you're like, Hey, I'm, I really believe in school choice or I, I don't like feel like my kids should still be wearing masks in school. And so like those type of, of issues. And of course, like there's like the traditional like fiscal conservatism and, and stuff like that, that was part of Youngkin's campaign, but he managed to somehow energize like the Trump voters without overtly appealing to them and also and without turning off like all of the moderate voters too so i just want to get like some some numbers that came out uh that i I thought were interesting so uh yunkin won in the suburbs 53 to 47 uh he won in rural virginia 64 to 36 and for non-college whites he won those voters by 76 24 so like he he was he managed to like it's a rare combination and maybe that, that's a credit to both the candidate and his campaign that you were able to win suburbs of like generally speaking like higher wealth higher educated voters but also win rural less educated voters uh, as, as well and not that those are even splits but like he was able to take from a lot of demographics to put his win together and that for republicans i mean that's definitely something that that's the gloating that's happening and be like look that's the That's the game plan. That's the blueprint. Like that's what we're going to do to take back the house next year and to, you know, tip the Senate back in our favor.
0: Yeah. I mean, I I think you gave a pretty rosy picture of how they, how they sort of ran their campaign. Like, I, I think it was a little bit more. um, I mean, one, you're absolutely right. Like he he knew that, you know, touting uh, a big support from Donald Trump wasn't going to be a winning strategy in a place that Biden carried by 10 points. So like he didn't even invite Trump to campaign on his behalf. But what he did do was in sort of subtle ways kind of take on issues like critical race theory, which we know are like big punching bags for uh, Trump's base. So in like, insofar as he could make sure that he held on to those Trump-like voters by, I think, I I forget exactly, there's like a, Virginia has some case about, like, banning books in schools, like, uh, some mother wanted Song of Solomon, like, removed from the reading list or something, or Beloved, one of those uh, Toni Morrison books, and, um, like, the idea, I, I think Terry McAuliffe ended up getting caught in a debate saying, like, parents shouldn't be deciding what their kids like learn in school or something. And that was a, a huge like hit point for the young King campaign. Like Terry McAuliffe believes that we should indoctrinate your children in critical race theory and that you shouldn't have anything to say about that. Like that, I mean, you know what I mean? The, so there is certainly he was able maybe to like appeal to maybe higher minded Republicans by not fully waging in that war himself but i think what i learned coming out of it is that that was very much a part of the campaign it's like how do we make sure that people are afraid of what the left will like the left whatever you know the big boogeyman will do to your children and it is it's kind of a classic republican tactic in that we are like one side is advocating for a change from your traditions and from like how you like grew up. And that's, I think a very scary thing. And it will always be a problem for progressives. And especially if you get a soundbite, like somebody telling you that you shouldn't have a say in how your kids are like educated all of a sudden it's, it becomes a big deal. And I, I mean, I think you could potentially argue this is a problem with elections because even a governor's race that had a fair amount of publicity to it. I don't think you like really learned a ton about the candidates going into, going into November's race. Um, and so you get a sound bite or two, you have a few national ads that are running and that's what you make your decision on. And certainly I I mean, there are other things too, right? Inflation, uh, general like cost of things getting more expensive Virginia's got a huge issue with rising costs of housing I mean not they're not unique to that but it's it's definitely a big big problem for them as well and so a lot of things that are just in tandem kind of working against the party in power
2: yeah and to some extent like everyone kind of expects like in the first midterm that there's going to be a backlash against whoever wins right We you talked about that a little bit last week where it's just like it's just like a one of those metronomes or like it just kind of like goes like all right it seems like this one party like it's taking over and then there's a backlash against it and like it's it's challenging because it's hard to get like things done in in a climate like that but like you also kind of like respect it or like no one in in the country wants the other side to get too much power and it's like once you once you give them a little bit it's like well that's a little too much we want to kind of drag that back and so yeah i think if we go back to your earlier point of like how big a deal is this you could say like this was kind of expected like like there's a lot of things working against the party well i mean
0: people pointed right to new jersey in 2009 virginia in 2009 after obama got elected huge margins in both those states Christie comes in in new jersey i forget who the virginia governor was but Yeah, you're I mean, you're you're exactly right. It is very energizing to the side that lost, whereas the side that won tends to take a playoff. It's like, you know, we did the thing now we can we can back off.
2: Right. And but I think that that was like a headline I saw a lot this week. It's like 2009 all over again. And I think that was really devastating to the Obama agenda, right? Is that like people, to your point, were like, hey, we did it right. And everyone kind of sat back and patted themselves on the back in some ways, rightfully so. But because there was such a backlash against him in like the, the 2009, 2011 elections, he wasn't really able to get very much done or certainly not the things that he wanted to get done in, in, over the course of his, his his tenure. And so I think Yeah, it's a question. Like, there are probably a lot of voters that were more worried about like what happens in Virginia in particular. But it's, I I do think there is an element, and you said this too, of like the backlash against like the the national kind of Democrats. And so when you look at what's happened, you know, over like the the latter portion of this campaign, right? We had the disastrous Afghanistan pullout. We've had like really like. These, this rising inflation, which is, is quite high, we have supply chain issues, like, you know, g- gas is up and all, all of these things where you kind of look at in the Democrats, um, we'll get to it, but hadn't at that point passed their infrastructure bill. And so you're looking at like nationally, like we put Democrats in power, and they're, you know, quite like, if you're looking at it, you could argue that like, they're not doing look, look what happens when they get in power, right? Like, Prices go up, taxes go up. We we're not as we're not doing a good job with our military. Like and again, those aren't necessarily true things, but those are kind of the narratives that run out there, and that's like a little bit of a backlash. I do think like Biden was in Europe last week um, for the the the, uh, yeah yeah the yeah the climate change in in Glasgow. But before he left, he said something along the lines of, uh, "I I get the quote. He said." Uh, quote, I don't think it's hyperbole to say that the House and Senate majorities and my presidency will be determined by what happens in the next week. Uh, and to, it's not for me to say it's hyperbole. He said it's not. And I like to his point, like the Biden administration was very invested in like, look, this is this is important for us to kind of keep if you're in the Biden administration, you want to say, like, hey, we've done a lot of things over this, you know, these first you know, 10, 11 months of our presidency. We want to keep that momentum going. Uh, I do think like, even if this was expected, this is definitely like the momentum has stopped and the momentum seems to be on the other side now. And that's going to be a real challenge that the Biden administration is going to have to overcome in the next year.
0: Yeah, it's I, I think that that is um, a really good point. And I, I'm, I'm, I forget her name. Uh, another a, a congresswoman from Virginia was basic, basically said, you know, the country elected you to stop the chaos, not to be FDR. And I think yeah, it's
2: Abigail yeah. Spanberger. Yes,
0: yeah, exactly. And I thought that that Great quote was, by the way, it, it's Great quote. It, it's an amazing quote because I think it's half right, right? Like I think you know the the energized progressives were not hoping for him to just like come in and just hang out and do nothing. They really wanted to see this. But the moderates, you know, the ones that got pulled back from who had voted for Trump maybe in 2016, were really just like, you know, we're sick of the tweets, and we just want all the noise to stop. And what they got was more noise just from a different side. Obviously, I would I would argue at least more productive noise, but at the end of the day, still a lot of uh, turmoil, like the, a lot of um, unrest in, in all, all sorts of different uh, sort of like forms of the word. And that, to me, was a big portion, right? I think so I, you may have mentioned this demographic, but like suburban voters who had voted for Biden by a 10, 11 point margin, almost completely flipped for Yunkin in this um, in this election. And I think those are the people for whom, yes, government is important. Tax policy is important, but like they don't require uh, the subsidies or like, you know, the big portions of government spending that are looking to address social inequality are likely not going to affect them in either direction. So um, when it comes to that voting block, like what matters to them, I, th- I think, it, you know, what they're what they're seeing in Washington is more of what they didn't want to see.
2: Yeah, that's fair. Uh, anything else you got on the Virginia election before we move to like, a, just a brief look at some of the other things?
0: i think i'll i think i'll rest
2: all right i guess like my last point and something you had brought up earlier where critical race theory while it's like not was not as far as i know like actually being taught in virginia schools and is not really being taught in in many schools it's become this kind of boogeyman for for the right and we we did a whole episode about it previously so if you're interested you can go back and and listen to, to that um but it is one of those ideas that i do think is is like big on the progressive left, which I would say like in like the Northeast corridor in like the, you know, for better for us, like the ivory towers of like academia, right? Where like, that's where this idea originated and it's it's being pushed at like the upper levels of um, graduate schools and, and universities. And while I don't think it's necessarily being taught to like our elementary school students, I do think that that's definitely something where like in the very like elite Progressive left, like that, is an idea that that's taken hold. Like maybe not like the exact critical race theory, but a lot of the ideas inherent in it. And I think that this th- that I do think there is something to be said that there is a backlash there, where that the the elite progressive left is a very loud voice, a very educated voice. It's it's the voices you hear on on Twitter and on some like the news stations. Um, but I don't think that represents the vast majority of like moderate Democrats. And I think those are the people that even if they maybe kind of to your earlier point, like generally believe that like we need to do better with racial equality when you're kind of like bringing those things into like theoretically their schools and their children, like they're not in favor of that either. And so I, to me, like this was a little bit of that progressive elite left, uh, Is just like wildly out of touch with the vast majority of the United States. And, and like that, and you hear that on like, like all those voices on Twitter, like they're just not representative of like real people out there.
0: So, I mean, I think there is an element to that. I think there is also an element to Republicans knowing how to get their voters afraid of, of just like to be afraid and vote for them. Because I think there's a lot less of like, you know, they're out there saying critical race theory over and over and over again. But like you said, it's it's not we're not talking about critical race theory as like a subject in somebody's third grade, like social studies, like curriculum, like it's just not there. And so while yes, I I, I think a lot of some of some of the literature and, and the writings that will come out of you know, you're right to point out like these elite universities where professors are sort of pontificating on like, you know, whatever it is, and then kind of writing up, this is what I think is the root cause of the problems in society. And then Republicans can take a a, a snippet of that and basically say that, you know, they're, you know, they're blaming you, and they want your children to hate themselves and like all this other stuff. And it's like, I mean, you know, maybe in some like far flung circles, there are elements of that, but it's, you know, similar with the, you know, the term woke and like wokeness, which is like a huge thing that, that Republicans talk a ton about, but like kid, you know, younger progressives don't use that word. Like that's not part of the lexicon that they use to describe themselves anymore because the idea was once, you know, people are people were viewing things like young black men being shot by police, unarmed black men being shot as individual incidents and the idea around being woke was that no you need to like open your eyes and see that this is happening kind of at a national level and that there's like something more uh pervasive and systematic about this that was the idea that like you know you can't just look at these things individually but it slowly became anytime somebody has something to say about a, a word, then all of a sudden they're like trying to be woke or too woke, but it's like a weird thing when like white people get a hold of a word and just like ruin it. Like that's like essentially what happened and now it's like in this in this social sphere that has nothing to do with like what it was originally intended to do and now it's being applied in all these ways that it's not and it's become a very effective tool for Republican strategists to say, look, older white voters are very turned off when they hear this stuff. So let's do everything we can to make sure we associate everything that comes out of democratic like policies with wokeness, with critical race theory, with like some kind of indoctrination. And we have a way to motivate voters who are not going to really dive deeper into these issues beyond that. Like, I like I, I agree that I think there is an element of it that it it's clearly out of touch and not resonating as well with people. Similarly, defund the police, like abolish ICE, a lot of those kind of extreme terms. But I feel like they were extreme because they were within a minority of people. Then they were picked up by sort of strategists on the right and amplified as if this is what you should be afraid of. Whereas in many ways... It's not, I don't think it was ever like a center of the, the party platform to like bring critical race theory into schools, but it was clearly on the ballot.
2: Yeah, no, I'll agree with that last point. And that, that was kind of what I was trying to get at is I don't think it's a center of like the democratic platform, but I do think that like some of the loudest voices that you hear are these people that are, are essentially saying, and this is like a constant reason why i did dislike the progressive left is like we know better than you and like we, we, we will tell you like the reasons for like systemic problems here in our country and, and then we're like you know everyone should be doing this right and i don't think it's the center of like the democratic platform and like i agree with that it's been amplified on the right as a kind of a boogeyman but I, it, it it's the reason that it's even out there is because you have a lot of loud voices that are kind of saying these things right it's not the right didn't make this stuff up out of nowhere
0: yeah i guess yeah i'll I'll, I'll
2: give you that all right um so the new jersey governor's race that was the other one that was kind of shocking so everyone knew or expected at least uh the democratic uh phil murphy the incumbent to to win it was as like the weeks got kind of close to the election people thought it was narrowing a little bit but uh, the morning after so last wednesday november 3rd uh the his opponent jack seatrell is Tia Torelli was, was leading him. Uh, And there were some, there were of course other votes that hadn't yet been counted and some mail-in ballots of Democrats tend to do better with those sorts of, um, you know, general buckets of of votes. Uh, So Phil Murphy did end up hanging on for a, a really tight, narrow win, but that was another one where Republicans felt like a lot of momentum because that wasn't a race that the Republicans really expected to be competitive. And then all of a sudden you wake up on the day after the election, Republicans were winning that race. So that was, Another one people pointed to of like, look at the momentum, how it's changing. Uh, Another thing in New Jersey, and this has gotten a lot of press. I don't know how like true this, all of this whole thing is, but whatever. Uh, This guy, uh, Edward Durr, uh, a guy, he's a truck driver, had never held public office before. He claimed he spent like $153 on his campaign and he unseated the, the incumbent New Jersey State Senate President Stephen Sweeney. Uh, and so this was another massive election, which was like kind of making the rounds on social media. At least of everyone pointing this guy, being like, "Look, you don't need to have a lot of money. You don't need to have like any like real experience in public office. You just need to have the right beliefs, and and people will will vote for you. And you can take out this saving, setting president." Which uh, honestly, I mean, it's a, it's a big deal. Like, in, I mean, not for me, but like in New Jersey, this guy was like the Senate president. Like he was one of the most powerful Democrats in the state, and he got taken out by you know a, a former truck driver no not disparaging truck drivers but it's uh it, it was unexpected yeah so any thoughts on on either of those races
1: yeah
0: like literally the second most powerful democrat in the state he sets the agenda the legislative agenda um in his role so and i think he had been there since 2010 so it's not not like yeah i mean here's the thing nobody knew who this truck driver was like it Was I think he had basically one ad, and it was him like shot on a cell phone video, like getting out of his truck, and I mean, you know, say what you want to say. It a lot of, I think there are a lot of parallels that can be drawn to Virginia as well. Like it, it didn't have anything to do with the candidate so much as people seeing things like inflation, hearing things about critical race theory, and. you know defunding the police and being like all right you know we're we're like we're voting republican on this ticket um because i i don't think any you know people who are saying you need to have the right beliefs i don't think very many people knew anything about this guy um when you know until after he was elected which unfortunately is is that a knock on democracy more so than anything else
2: Right. I mean, that's really just people ascribing beliefs onto this guy, whatever he actually personally believes. And be like, those are the beliefs that I believe in. And because he has an R next to his name, like he must believe in them too, or something like something. Or he doesn't have a D next to
0: his name. So that's Yeah,
2: exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Which might be scarier for Democrats in some way. (laughs) Like (laughs) like anybody that doesn't have a D next to their. All right. Uh, A couple other things that I thought were notable in this kind of, this would go back to my original like kind of thesis here. But like, if you look at uh, Minneapolis, they they had a proposal on there to replace their their police department. Obviously, Minneapolis was the center, the epicenter of you know the, the George Floyd tragedy and all of the surrounding unrest for last summer. There were huge cl- calls to defund the police. Minneapolis voters rejected that by uh, like a twelve point margin. Um, in Seattle, another very blue uh, progressive city, they elected their first Republican to like, a city position in in a very long time. The Seattle city attorney is now Republican because the Democratic candidate was, you know, advocated for the abolition of the police department. And so we saw this kind of throughout some of these big, as you mentioned, like blue progressive cities where you know, theoretically, if you had rolled the calendar back a year, you had all this momentum for defunding the police. And and again, we, we've we talked extensively about what that actually means. But when voters actually had a chance, even in these cities to do what so many of them seem to have wanted to do, or at least that was the narrative, they rejected it. And I mean, that goes, I mean, you could connect the New York City race, as we talked about too, like to that as well, of there's a there's a narrative out there that, you know, people are anti-police or that it's time to defund the police but when push comes to shove even in the most progressive cities voters are rejecting those ideas
0: yeah i and i think this you know ties back a lot to what we sort of started this conversation with which is the challenge for progressives like obviously you know the branding and marketing on the left is just not good. It's like the things that fire up progressives among progressives just don't ever sound good, especially when they're no longer controlling the narrative, right? Like we've talked about some of the intricacies around like, what does defunding the police mean? Where does it come from? It, you know, the or origin being more of like, a we need to handle crime from a different angle rather than just adding money to the police force. Like that is a very reasonable Thing that I think a lot of people could say, okay, like maybe that's something that we could try. You say defund the police, and all of a sudden it's a very like, and then and you have nobody to explain the nuance, then you know you've lost the battle before before it's even started. And part of it potentially voter education, but this is how elections work. Like you have to be able to brand yourself and, and your message is very tied to the language that you use and you get like three words you get you know what i mean that is something that i don't think and yeah, i mean draws back to what you were saying like within progressive circles like how you talk about these things has to be different than how you communicate them nationally and in the world where when you tweet someone can copy and paste your tweet and say so so and so believes this now even if you had intended like a you know a three paragraph essay, but you used 140 characters. You you got to know that there are repercussions to that, and and then on top of it that like progressives believe in a lot of these things that just like when it comes down to like oh how would this work? I don't know. I don't like that. Never mind. <laughs> yeah.
2: All right. Well, let's wrap with uh, victory for progressives. You know, it's been a, it, was a, it was a tough tough week for you guys out there and, do the
0: let's
2: do that yeah here. let's end on a high note for you guys give you throw your bone so here in boston while well, we previewed this race uh extensively last week but uh, michelle Wu, who was the definitely the far farther to the left candidate um uh, defeated nisa sabi george pretty much along like ex- expected margins i think 62 38 or something like that was was the final and that's pretty much what people expected there was no late or unknown surge from, uh, more conservative or moderate voters. that's, you know, we had her base and she just really expanded her base. And so credit to her. I mean, she is, as we noted, this is, uh, you know, historic in the sense that this is the first woman that Boston has ever elected. It's the first non-white person that Boston has ever elected. And so, um, yeah, we'll see what she does, but do you have any kind of thoughts coming any more thoughts coming out of that race?
0: Yeah. I mean, I I'm I'm definitely excited about it. Um I th- I think it, it's it's interesting because like the Boston sort of mayoral race has almost led to like a a lifetime appointment unless something like, you know, with with Walsh you get picked up as, as yeah. a labor secretary like Menino was here forever and um was it Curley before Menino or I don't know, but I mean, I think the the mayor before him was there for a long time. Um, and so yeah, I mean, intre- but, but it's usually been more of a, more of like a middle of the road type of person. And now you have Blue who's, who's, as you said, much farther on the left. Um, I think it will be interesting to see sort of some of the direction that we go in. Uh I'm, I am cautiously optimistic and I really do hope that she listens to all the voices and not just the loudest voices because we know as a progressive who energized progressive voters, she's going to get a lot of kind of like, I want big change and I want it now. Um, And I mean, (laughs) big change is scary, certainly it's sometimes necessary, but I've always been a firm believer that we have to get like everybody on board, um, in order to, to to like buy into those big changes because they typically, they typically start off rocky. And if most people are not even committed to seeing the initial phases through then then a lot of those big things fall apart. And the mayor the mayor is not a lifetime appointment so if things go wrong early like you could see her out um by the next election so yeah definitely hopeful like sort of proud of the city of boston of like taking a risk in this direction but understanding that it's a risk and we will we'll definitely see (laughs) what do you think i got
2: i got got a take for you that I, i want reaction so this isn't my take but I saw it and I was like huh interesting and I wanted to bring it, bring it up and see what you thought So I saw this that the, the the election of Wu was basically saying that there's no place for like moderates here in Boston anymore and that the, the coalition for Wu were like wealthier elite people from Boston many of whom have moved into the city uh, either from the suburbs or from after having graduated from the many like elite colleges and universities we have here and a coalition of poorer people that depend on like um, a lot of the services that government provides. And so, and I, I think that's a fair assessment of her coalition is kind of like the, the quote unquote elite progressives, wealthier people, and also a lot of people that do depend on government services. And the reaction coming out of that is like, there's really no, there's not much of a place anymore for like the maybe more traditional, typical, Boston moderate voter anymore and as we alluded to you know Walsh, Menino, Flynn, White like all of those you know they're white guys but they were generally kind of you know center-left politicians and Wu is very much not that and while that might just be like a reflection of this moment maybe it's a reflection of how Boston is changing but I think for a lot of moderate voters who grew up around Boston that's a sign that like the city has changed to a point where it's no longer the city that they grew up in and you could argue that's a, that's okay that's actually a good thing right but i think for them that's like a fear of like look the city that we grew up in electing these moderate voters these moderate um you know mayors or whomever like that that city seems to be
1: gone
0: yeah it's it's an interesting question certainly boston has seen a lot of demographic shifts in the last 20 or so years explosion in tech and like uh well, bringing a lot of wealthier, you know, elite university graduates um, into the city. And unfortunately, displacing in many parts, like middle class white voters who are sort of the the base of like the previous sort of generation of elected officials within Boston. Um, yeah, I think this is the thing that Democrats always, or especially progressive voters always believe is that like okay now we have convinced the people of like our moral superiority which you know i believe they have but not convinced them but i believe they do have a moral high ground but anyways it never it doesn't work out like that it's i think it's going to be very much results driven i think boston is a results driven place and we'll see if she delivers on some of the promises to alleviate some of the problems that we talked about, um, home, homelessness, drug addiction, if she can do something about housing affordability um, and not sort of significantly impact some of the other aspects of life um, and sort of navigate us through the end of this, hopefully the end of this sort of pandemic era. Um then I think, I think, yeah, I think we'll see a double downing of progressive policies. I think if it goes in the other direction, I wouldn't be surprised at all if voters flip back. Um, I don't, I, I think one of the things that I appreciate, appreciate about Boston is I think that, I mean, and of course being a homer and bias that I think there are thoughtful people here. And I, I think people have sensed that now maybe be a moment to go for a change like this and we haven't had an opportunity like that like you said a, a momentous election and they're sort of see doubling down and seizing the debt seizing the opportunity but i don't i i don't think for those who are more moderate who may think like okay now we're in for like a a spiral or a, a landslide i don't i don't see that happening I, I would see us course correcting if if things were not going well if things go well then you know, like, like in any other place, you're not going to mess with it if it's not broken. What's your take? Are you, are you, are you worried the future of Boston has no place for you? <laughs> <laughs>
2: no, I'm not worried about that. Um, But I feel like I can fit in. I'm a chameleon, Ricky. I can, I can fit in whatever. I I, I think, yeah, there's, there's some sense that like the metronome that we talked about earlier, particularly if, if who does go for some bigger swings in our first couple years, I think I could see the metronome swinging back, but uh, I do think there's been a fundamental change like demographically is these older white voters are either dying or moving out to the suburbs for various reasons or being, whether they're being pushed out or they're moving out for, you know, reasons that pi- pi- people typically do. And, while well, Boston continues to be a center for immigration and bringing in people from all, all over the world. And that's definitely increased, uh, you know, in recent years. And as, as you mentioned, like a lot of people continue to move here, like richer people, which is, which goes to like the whole, you know, the housing market, the explosion in, in housing prices or like we talked about last uh, in terms of the like gentrification that we talked about last episode. So I do think there is some, there's a a, a more fundamental shift than like, than, a transitory one um that doesn't mean that we're going to be electing progressives every every four years going forward i don't think but i, I do think that there are certain demographic shifts that um portend a bigger change in boston politics than just this one election Um, uh, and again i'm not even saying that that's a bad thing but i do think that that's a fair assessment to say that look like Things have changed, and sixty forty is like it's. It wasn't, you know, it's not a small margin, and, and and that was with Wu, who's a maybe more extreme candidate than a lot of candidates you're going to get in Boston. So, I do think there's something to be said for that. That Boston, like the typical Boston voter base, has has changed.
0: Yeah, I I, I don't disagree with any of those points. I guess maybe one of the things I would say on the the margin is that Wu started her campaign when Walsh was looking like he was going to run for reelection. Saifu George came in like, you know, much, much later to the game. And she, you know, barely won, uh, the, the chance to, to sit in the November election, like by less than a percentage point over Campbell and, um, that acting mayor Janey. So, um, uh, I don't know that she had like a full run up to really establish her candidacy and Wu was a little bit more of a household name. She was always going to get the votes that she was going to get. But then there are some people who are going to show up on Election Day and not really know, you know, who the candidates are. And I wouldn't be surprised if more of them were familiar with Wu, at least going into that election than Aside B. George. And so. There's there are a lot of dynamic it's it, it it is, you know, trying to understand who the average voter is and what they know about the candidates going into the polling booth, I think is a really interesting thing because we we're constantly trying to figure out like, you know, why does this demographic vote this way or this and you know, and we're pointing to policies and things like that. But there's a lot of I mean I did you did you know any of the other candidates for Boston city council on that ballot? Like, had you heard of them aside, aside from the ones who are sort of sitting city council? So sitting city councilors, you may have seen their posters around, maybe have heard of a few things that they've done, but like new folks running for city council, I had to look up every single one of them. And that like, and I was, because I did my ballot from home, I could sit and do that with my computer screen, like folks going into the, uh, going into the booth for the first time. I can't imagine, have any idea who those people are that they're voting for. Are they voting based (laughs) on what the name says? I like, I'm confused.
2: (laughs) Well, that's one place to leave our election talk.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess, I guess if I'm going to actually put a, a cogent thought together on this is that I think it, is, it becomes very easy to look at the headlines and think about here are sort of the broader, higher level reasons why things are going. And maybe those are the main drivers. But I also just knew as an individual going into that going, go, you know going in to fill out my ballot that even though I think of myself as somebody who is well informed, you know beyond the top line, I didn't know, and I, I hardly knew anything. Yeah, so,
2: that's that like a fair like, takeaway about elections and I mean you've alluded to it several times in this episode and we talked about it previously like that's not necessarily a good thing but that's the reality and so like as, as candidates and as like people observing it like we also have to like keep that in mind
0: yeah definitely all right so when we come back we'll get into maybe some of the of a fallout of of, uh, of these election results um, but we'll, we'll talk a little infrastructure
1: I'm building Straight to your heart. And all of this will keep us
2: apart. Well, Ricky, it's finally happened. The House has passed the Biden infrastructure bill. It's a BIF uh, bipartisan infrastructure bill, BIF, as it's been kind of known out, out there. Uh so, this bill, like we've been, like I said in the in, like opening, we've been talking about this bill for eight What's months. The infrastructure. Oh, okay. I think. <laughs> <laughs> that's, how, that's at least how that's what it means in my head. I don't know what it actually means. <laughs> uh, all right. But this is one of the things that Biden campaigned on, right? And like most presidents in the 20, 21st century have campaigned on infrastructure, infrastructure, infrastructure. Uh, and Biden said he was going to get it done. And he came out with this plan. It had, you know, about, you know, one of those approximately signs, uh, trillion dollar price tag, it kind of got hammered out over the summer. Um, finally, in August, the Senate passed it. And the Senate passed it uh, like 69 to, to 30 or something like that. Um, and so one of those rare, particularly in this day and age, like, true bipartisan compromise everyone kind of got on board with it in the Senate uh, except for more like far-right Republicans but all all the Democrats voted for it and 19 Republicans voted for it so it was one of those things it was like I think we talked about it back in August like all right it's actually happening like credit to everyone but then it got to the House and it was an absolute mess uh, and we can talk about why it was such a mess but finally this past Friday night uh, late Friday night I think it was like 11:30 p.m. East, East Coast time uh, it, it got passed and so Let's talk uh, kind of generally what's in the bill, and then we can, you know, talk about why it took so long to get passed. All right. So the the price tag on it's like $1.2 trillion. It's 2,700 pages. <laughs> 2,702 pages, I think. Uh, 2,700 pages. All right. Uh, it's called the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act. Um, it contains uh, only like $550 billion of new spending. So like that big top line figure that we were talking about, it also comes from like traditional funding that's normally add at like allocated to highways and other infrastructure projects. So let's talk about some of the new spending that, that 550 billion. So we got 110 billion for roads and bridges. Uh, this means like, you know, construction of new bridges, repair of old bridges, uh, it also, I think, pays for some like research for like infrastructure that goes on at universities, um, some congestion relief in American cities. I don't really know what that means, but um, I'm, I'm for congestion relief. It's <laughs> uh, some some funding for Puerto Rico's highways, which I'm sure is very necessary. Uh, we have 66 billion for railroads, so that includes like upgrades and maintenance of like uh, the passenger rail system and the, and the freight rail system. $65 billion for the power grid, which we talked about uh, in depth last March. Um, so this would fund updates to like power lines and cables and provide some money to uh, ensure the safety of the power grid. And there's some like clean energy funding in there as well. There's uh, another $65 billion for broadband. So this is uh, particularly for rural and like low-income communities. Uh, so, I mean, whatever, I'm not going to opine yet, but $55 billion for water infrastructure. Uh, that includes um, a bunch of money for like lead price, lead pipe replacement for some chemical cleanup to make sure that we're providing clean um, drinking water to again, like low-income rural tribal communities, uh, 47 billion for cybersecurity and, and climate change. Uh, so that's both to protect like infrastructure from cybersecurity attacks, but also to address like the flooding, wildlife, wildfires, coastal erosion, like all these extreme weather events we've been having 39 billion for public transit, um, that includes like new bus routes and make making public transit more accessible to seniors and disabled Americans uh 25 billion for airports 17 billion for ports Um, so it's it's got a, a bunch of different things in it but this is what is like the traditional infrastructure and so when we have thought of infrastructure for as long as I can remember it has been like roads and bridges like those are the things and like the airports and like the ports themselves like all of those type of places those are traditional infrastructure and those are the things largely that are included in this bill and maybe if you want to talk about it we can talk about the separate build back better bill that has like that very expanded uh definition of infrastructure which includes a lot of like social and human investments but this bill was you know largely traditional infrastructure and uh, i guess like this has been a long lead up, and you know, I apologize. I'll throw it to you in a minute. But uh, in terms of passing the House, the, the final vote was, uh, I believe, like two twenty eight to two oh six, and there was a little bit drama because, as we've acknowledged, that the Democratic majority in the House is like razor thin. They pretty much need all of their votes to pass anything if they're not going to get any Republican support. But they didn't get all of their votes. Six Democrats voted against it. Uh, probably no surprise to anybody who pays attention to the House, but. Uh, those people included AOC, Ilhan Omar, Ayanna Pressley, from Massachusetts, Rashida sleeve, Jamal Bowman, Corey Bush. All voted against it, um, and so that you know put the onus. That everyone turned to Republicans, like if or any of the Republicans going to support it. And credit to these people, thirteen Republicans came forward. Uh, I don't, I'm not going to name them all. but I guess probably the one that people would most know is Adam Kinzinger from Illinois. He's been probably the most outspoken, um, kind of anti-Trump or anti-January um, sixth, which. Shouldn't be controversial, but has been. Um, so, yeah, it, it was it ended up being like a bipartisan bill, both in the Senate and in the House, which probably a blessing in disguise that those six Democrats voted against it because it forced some Republicans to vote for it. And that's generally better when we can get support from both sides to pass an infrastructure bill that, again, like that's a ton of money but it's money that I think most people would agree is like needed for our country and our economy and our like safety. So uh, I'm very pleased. I'm happy that uh, Biden got it done. I'm happy that, you know, the Senate passed it and that the house eventually came together and got it done. So um, I'm pleased with it.
0: Yeah. It's, I mean, long, long overdue. Uh, I feel like every president for the last like 20 years has been and part of their campaign has been you know we're going to do something about infrastructure, and really, we haven't seen any major investments in infrastructure in a long long time and i th- I think globally you know the u s has come to sort of global prominence and power for a number of reasons, but you know one thing that people point to was our national highway system that really allowed our interstate commerce to just explode. And now when we talk about, you know, what are the future engines of the economy, broadband is hugely necessary, right? So like in the past we had the rural electrification um, under under FDR, and now we're finally looking to really expand access to broadband internet. Um, water infrastructure. Like the fact that there are many, many areas in the US that still have like lead pipes in their water system is, is a absurd for a country of our size and you know economic stature. And so yeah, it's it's definitely good to see. I think it's I think that difference between the marketing of a one point one one point two trillion dollar uh, bill versus Five hundred and fifty billion crazy that we say things with a billion with a B it doesn't sound like that much anymore but it's a it's a quite a sizable difference in terms of new spending and it's something that one like you know you can argue this should be the core function of government is to make sure that these goods that every single person uses work and they work. Like well, and they're not bridges that we need, you know, that are, that are should be condemned, and that our power infrastructure is being upgraded. And yeah, so definitely pleased. Um, Certainly worried that a lot of things got left out, and it was a lot of work to get this one over the line. We've talked about this before like, why don't we tackle these in smaller chunks? And speaking, because it's like, a lot of these people can't stand to be in the room together for that long. So once they do one thing, they're like, all right, I'm taking the next two years off.
2: Yeah. And this is like hard to believe given that it's $1.2 trillion, but this is a smaller chunk. You yeah. know what I mean? Like this was one of the like, all right, we can all agree on this at least, right? And not that we can all agree at all, but like that's that's something. Uh but Yeah, I I agree with all all of what you said. I got clearly on the record of like not in favor of the government spending money like willy nilly. I don't feel like this is that at all. And unfortunately, like we don't people only care about infrastructure when a a disaster or a tragedy happens. And then everyone's like, well, we should have done something about that. Like everyone saw it coming and all these reports come out and say like, I would think the classic example is like the Katrina example where. Once like the levees broke and everyone said like look look at all of the signs look at all the things that people knew and now all of a sudden we have this human tragedy and there's so much criticism but like that only happens after the fact like we need to continue to be uh, preventative and um, like proactive instead of reactive and like you know knock on wood like that's what this is going to do and like all these bridges that we see that were built in like like the Great Depression era because that was another like huge infrastructure like spend is like like we see all these bridges and it's like kind of cool in the one sense to be see like night if we'd ever drive the Cape, right. It's like 1926, 1933. Right. And it's like, all right, that's cool. But like, <laughs> uh, like, like, I don't know that these bridges were meant to have like this load of cars and trucks going over them for a hundred years here, you know? Uh, and so I'm, I'm excited not like, I don't know where like all of these money, this money is necessarily going, but it's, I, I, I it, it seems necessary to me. And I'm, I, I like this is spending to your point that I think the government should do. And uh, and it's largely paid for. Like they, they this isn't just like, Hey, we're going to run a, like a, a bigger deficit, although I think they will in the short term, but like a lot of this is being offset with other taxes. And um, some, some of the money you were saying is like tax credits for energy stuff. So it's like, this isn't, this is really exactly what I think should happen. It's like, all right, this is like the money that we need is going to a you know, worthwhile cause, I think most people can agree. Like this country needs to run better and be safer and, and, and help our economy. And uh, it's it's going with money that's not just pulled out of thin air. We're not going to print more money. We're going to find a way to pay for this. And um, so, in that sense, like this is everything I think the government should be doing. I'm thrilled with it.
0: Yeah, I'll, I'll do a little re- real time correction. I was just looking up um, exactly what is in this bill and left out of the other one the tax credit portion for sort of incentivizing new clean energy is actually not included in this bill. I think this like the 65 billion for power infrastructure is like what you're saying, predominantly for transmission line extension, which we talked a little bit about it, but our, our grid was sort of a, a patchwork uh, system sort of put together and, and basically just like daisy chaining things from, from one side of the other. And we've been long overdue for kind of, investing in long distance transmission um specifically when we're going to try and put a lot of this renewable energy um onto the system but um i mean so here's a question why didn't why haven't republicans done this i don't
2: know and i think that was a persistent criticism of trump and one of the like the few substantive issues i think biden did a good job hitting him with during the debate is like you promised all these things and you didn't deliver on them like i don't like this this should have been a win like an easy win for trump and i think if he had delivered it like not that he would have necessarily won the election but i think it would have been like a legislative thing that he could point to and say like look i am the deal maker i did do this after no one else did but instead biden gets the credit for doing that and he deserves the credit for doing that um i don't know man like it's crazy. This is a little off, not answering your question, but I don't know if you saw like the, the 13 Republicans that voted for it are now getting like death threats and, and like people are like calling them like, it's like kind of funny, but also like insane. Like what, like, what are we talking about here? We're calling our Congress people and and like giving them death threats for voting for an infrastructure package. Like this, like, this shouldn't even be controversial. And I guess like the, the only possible reason I could think of will come to was like, there are always priorities, right? And so, like, you gotta, like, you can't necessarily do all of the things at once. And so, if the priority is maybe immigration or um, national security or like whatever the economy, like tax cuts, or right? like, there are only so many bills that like, you can really spend, like your political capital in terms to get passed. And so, even though Trump or you know said infrastructure was one was one of them, it clearly wasn't one of his top priorities. Because if it was, he would have gotten it done. Uh, and then, I mean, you could. Theorize that the price tag is an, an off put for many Republican voters that see a, a price tag like 1.2 trillion. And I think like this is just government spending run amok again. And like, how insane is this? Like, it's going to increase taxes, which it is, but not on like middle class or like lower income folk, um, generally speaking. Uh so why didn't they get it done? Yeah, I don't I don't have a good answer for you. Those are my theories. Uh but I again I want to emphasize like it's just insane to me that like the climate is so toxic that someone could vote for an infrastructure bill and not, then has to like defend themselves. It's that's makes it it's that that's frightening.
1: Yeah,
0: I I mean, I think you know some of the concerns that you raise especially around you know, what are what are the priorities for the government are certainly you know reasons that you might be unhappy that they were focusing on this, maybe not on something else. I think largely the the gripe would be like we don't want to give this president any victories, and like oh, yeah. you yeah. allowed him to get a win here, and yeah. that was that makes us unhappy, um, and that that is definitely a shame. When in like the reason that government has is so slow or so like is functioning functions like molasses is because there are objectors for the sake of objecting and making sure that the other side can't get any feathers in their cap. And it's um, really
2: <laughs> so, no, but yeah, no, it is. And it's like, that's, that's the point that the government's become obstructionist now. Like this, should, this should be something where like these 13 Republicans should be able to go back to their districts and say, like, look what I did for us like I, I accomplished something because I'm willing to take hard votes and I got X amount of dollars for our district. Like that road you use that bridge, our airport is not going to be better because of my vote. That This is a win for Biden, of course, but it's a, it's a win for everyone. <laughs> like it, like I, that it's, it's, it sucks that it's like, it's, it's drawn down while all was, I can't believe like, and, and Trump's a huge driver of this, right? Like, it's like, I can't believe all these like weak Republicans caved and gave Biden this win. It's like, that's not what happened. Like Theoretically, you're electing people to go to Congress to make like our lives better. And it's hard to argue that like making like investments in infrastructure doesn't make the vast majority of lives here in America better.
0: Yeah, and and is not totally necessary for us to be able to like compete in like the like like we see in areas that don't use democratic practices, sort of accelerate their internal infrastructure. Right. Like China is like a huge one, they don't have to worry about anybody telling them no, because it's basically, you know, for all intents and purposes, a dictatorship, right? You know, when the dictator is deciding to do things that are benefiting the society, you see those things accelerate at a pace that you just can't see, envision them here in the US. And um, I'm not advocating for a dictatorship, I won't be very clear on that. But it, it is, you know, one of the things about democracy being messy but the problem is is yeah people have to like you got to pick and choose your battles and like for for this it is very surprising yeah a little disappointing that we that it it wasn't even you know more uh more universal support and i guess maybe the one thing and not that this is really a moment to take a dig at republicans but like when i think of policies that Republicans have enacted in the last 20 years, I really think of tax cuts and literally nothing else. And so when, like, there was an opportunity under the Trump administration that infrastructure was something that almost, and not really that we need to bring this back to him, but I I guess I am. Here we are. Here we are. Um, That, like, this was something that even people who kind of despise everything about him would agree that we needed to do, instead we you know spent the four years of his presidency doing all sorts of other things because he was never really interested in like the whatever the deal making that he that, that he kind of ran on um and, but uh, but i think this becomes a, a a challenge for republicans is like how do you put forward actual policies like <laughs> republicans are In many in many of these elections, running just against proposals that Democrats are putting forward, I'm I've almost rarely felt like I've seen like here's the alternative. Here is like what we are going to do instead. It's like no, no, no. The the instead is status quo, and what they're doing is changing the status quo. And we don't. And this is what you're like fighting for. And I guess my question to you is like does that feel like the Republican platform or is there something when people are saying like, you know, we have issues with the status quo, maybe we don't believe in sort of the progressive solutions, but like we would like to see some solutions. Like, like where do you see kind of Republicans fitting in that picture? Because I see today them as just like the obstructionists, the the ones that want to, put forward all of the things that could go wrong if we kind of try and address the issues in the way that progressives are suggesting that we address the issues, but not like, here's how I would do it.
2: <laughs> yeah, I don't disagree with any of that, right? I mean, we, we mentioned it last year at this time when we were talking about how the Republican platform was essentially, they literally didn't even vote on it at the national convention. They just, they said our platform is Trump's platform, right? which, in, what, what, what was Trump's platform? Good question uh and so i i i've advocated for this, certainly as long as we've been doing this podcast but certainly well before that too it's like republicans have to be a party of ideas again and you know that it's it's I, I i really believe in like conservative like the values like the the traditional things of like limited government and rule of law like things the things that we should be running on in the more quote-unquote kitchen table issues of uh whether it's lower taxes or school choice, like those type of things, I think those are issues that play, and maybe we see a little bit of that in Youngkin's campaign. Uh, and that, that's where like I'd want to dig into more, but I don't know. I, I do think, and Trump's obviously not purged from the party yet, but I I, I do think that like one like the large political figures kind of fall away. That there's room for it's like almost like a forest like burning. You know, like this room for like regrowth, and a, a chance for you know if we don't get Trump in 2024, we get hopefully uh, a wide you know array of candidates stepping up with their own ideas and you know whomever that might be if it's um DeSantis or Nikki Haley or Liz Cheney or Kinzinger or um you know like uh Rubio or Cruz like whoever like I, I I I'm like not endorsing any of those people we're just saying like there's a there could be a diversity of people that are actually thinkers and like actually like have like ideas and principles for for the republican party so yeah i i don't disagree that that's kind of what the republicans are right now and it needs to get back to more of a a, a an idea driven um party at that at this point and yeah hopefully you know they will at some point um all right last last thing i'll say on this is um Naomi Biden, uh, by the president's granddaughter, I don't know if you saw, she tweeted uh, after it finally passed, this is a big fucking deal. Yeah, which is like the classic throwback where um, Biden was caught on a hot mic uh, grabbing Obama's shoulders after he finally signed He signed his uh, Obamacare or the ACA in, into law. And uh, that was kind of a, I mean, one of the classic lines from the Biden vice presidency. So I thought that was funny that his granddaughter you know, tweeted that after getting the infrastructure bill passed.
0: All right, when, uh, when we come back, we just got a couple things we want to mention before wrapping up. Um, I'll do that in a minute. <phone rings>
2: So a couple of weeks ago, uh, the United States lost one of its, in my opinion, greatest figures, uh, Colin Powell. I um, mean, he, he passed away, I believe on October 18th, which is shortly after recorded um, one of our previous episodes. And it's something that I definitely wanted to acknowledge in general, but I, it feels particularly appropriate to acknowledge on Veterans Day. And in my opinion, Colin Powell is probably the greatest soldier that I have known and in, in like kind of, that's been a part of like my lifetime here. And in the mold of some of the the greater greatest soldiers that like we've had previously like the the dwight eisenhower's or the the teddy roosevelt's or the george Washington. not to put him like kind of on necessarily that pedestal but uh he he's he's on on a, a similar level for me uh he's really a remarkable man uh served uh in the army office corps during the vietnam war and then he became a statesman after that he's like we very in that American tradition of a soldier statesman, uh he was the first black person to serve as the chairman of the joint chiefs of staff, the first black person to serve as the national security advisor, and the first black person to serve as the secretary of state. Uh, like, always, I like honestly get like goosebumps even like talking about it. like it's like what an incredible he's the only he's the only person ever to have done all three of those, to have served in all three of those positions. It's um uh, really an, an incredible life and career. Uh he you know he's been like if you look at like american foreign policy in the last half century like he's he's one of those like almost like a Forrest Gump type figure where he's like he's in all of these things like he's serving in vietnam he's he's serving uh you know under the reagan and bush administrations like during like the end of the cold war and then the first uh gulf war and then he's serving in the george w bush administration during the beginnings of the war in iraq and afghanistan like he's he's one of those guys that's just just everywhere and I do think it's appropriate to acknowledge that, like he had some some missteps in in his career. I, the, the most notable one uh, was that he gave a speech uh, at the United Nations uh, saying that the United States had proof that uh, Iraq had weapons of mass destruction. I think the speech was back in two thousand three um, to try to gain like international support for the subsequent U.S. invasion in Iraq. Uh, that obviously turned out not to be true. Um, it's you know, and I spent some time going back and trying to look at that because we were still young when when that speech happened. But I, I honestly, I remember even in that moment, like as maybe a younger Republican being like, well, Colin Powell said it. you know, like, he was just someone that like lended some like gravitas to an administration that maybe didn't necessarily have a ton of that. Uh, for someone, that he, he was just someone I trusted. And even like as a young person, we didn't know anything. Uh, and, you know, coming to find out that Powell behind the scenes was really pushing back against that and did, did not agree with a lot of the, the intelligence that they were getting, didn't want to go forward with with uh, making the case that the United States knew Iraq had was a mass destruction when, when the United States didn't, but he was out like outvoted uh, in the cabinet by pretty much everyone else. And he kind of thought like, hey, I'm around a bunch of really smart people, people that I have a lot of respect for, and they're all telling me I'm wrong, which means that I'm probably wrong. And <laughs> like, even though he, he was maybe wrong to kind of give up on that. And then to give that subsequent speech, like that's a quality I have like a ton of respect for of like being in a room and like being like, all right, well, if everyone else is telling me I'm wrong, and they're all people that I, I respect, then, you know, I'm actually gonna reconsider my views. Uh, and so it's while it's like a, a dark stain on an on otherwise remarkable career, and maybe one of the things he's unfortunately most known for, I don't, want or think that that should define him like he's he's an historic figure and not only that like like some of the policies he put in place and, so, and even just as like a a figure like i condoleezza rice uh wrote an op-ed in the washington post the the week that he died and saying that like when they were on a trip i think they were they were on a trip to the uk they were at buckingham palace and they were sitting there and president bush is there and queen elizabeth is there and Condoleezza Rice turned to Colin Powell and is just like, I can't believe we're here right now. Like one of those things, like, look, look at us right now. Like these, these two black people who are historic trailblazers, both in their own rights are sitting in Buckingham Palace, like having having tea with the queen. And um Condoleezza Rice, like, kind of wrote about how much someone having someone like Colin Powell in these like elite sit- positions of government, like really meant to some, like a, a younger black person looking up and saying like, look, I could do that. And of course we talk about Obama with like reverence in the sense that like he was the first you know, black president. And that's, that's obviously a huge, uh, not a huge accomplishment, but I'm, what I'm saying is like Powell had been there and had paved the way for the Obamas of the world. Like we can't like Lloyd Austin, our current secretary, of Defense like these people, I don't think necessarily come along as quickly or as easily as they do without people like Colin Powell there. And the fact that Colin Powell was black, but also uh, conservative, I, I think, you know, there's maybe wasn't embraced as much maybe in the national media as that historic trailblazing figure, but he, he absolutely should be. And someone that, I don't know, like with politics, maybe it's always been this messy. Maybe it's just felt messier in the last few years, but i I like, it just feels like we don't have as many, and we certainly don't have enough Colin Powells around anymore.
0: Yeah, I- I I, uh, I think that was a beautiful summary of, um, yeah, what was undoubtedly unquestionably just a remarkable life. Um, someone who politically, as you alluded to, sort of had kind of made some decisions that I might not have agreed with, but largely like had integrity as like a person. And sadly it's just something we just don't get enough of um and i yeah i don't know i don't know that i have much more to add
2: sure um last thing i'll say is i actually want to kind of quote himself he was talking about himself in, in an article and he said they the new york times asked him to describe himself uh and this is later in his life after he had been out of office and so also like after he got out of office he spent a lot of time he started charter school like he, he invested a lot in like younger people which again i always have great respect for but when asked to describe himself, he said, quote, Powell is a problem solver. He was taught as a soldier to solve problems. So he has views, but he's not an ideologue. He has passion, but he's not a fanatic. And that's the end of the quote. And just like that balance of passion and and wisdom. And uh, it's, it just, it feels rare uh, in anybody these days. And and someone that I have great respect for uh, and, I guess it's hard to say that he'll be missed, but I think like his it's a it's a loss for for the country to to, to lose like a great soldier and statesman like that. Um, so on this Veterans Day, you know, for for all the people who served, it, it definitely feels appropriate to take a moment and, and um, appreciate everything that Colin Powell did for the country. Yeah,
0: um, I it's t- tough to to follow that with this, but I did want to also acknowledge that uh, member of the Red Sox family. Jerry Remy passed away recently as well. Um, I don't know if you have too many memories of him. I didn't actually really know that he was a player uh, until sort of more recently, Uh, but he's sort of a famed Red Sox broadcaster. Um, And I've just like his his voice sort of narrating the games for me, especially growing up, Uh, was a very fond part of my childhood and um, definitely going to miss him as well.
2: Yeah, it's it's a sad moment. Remy was only, I think, I mean, 68. Like, he, w- he was not that old, and he had battled, like, incredibly, uh, thinking, like, uh, these all of, like, these bouts of, of cancer. Like, something like almost, like, 10 bouts with cancer in in recent years. But, yeah, he's, like, one of those like, dream stories. He grew up here in Somerset, Massachusetts, and, like, he was not a big guy as anybody who, like, if you're picturing him now, he's, like, 5'9". You know, he's, like – we always wanted to play baseball and then I to grow up and play for the Red Sox in, in the 70s and when the Red Sox had like kind of the you know something like their revival and then grows up and not only plays for the Red Sox becomes like their announcer in 1998 and yeah for me like grow, like Don Orsillo and Jerry Remy were the best and like that, that there's just so many memories of them just having like the best time and like having and just providing and making the game experience more fun they're like everything I'd want a pair of announcers to be and uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's super sad that, that he's gone so early. Um, you know, he threw out the first pitch. Everyone knew he was sick, obviously, but he threw out the first pitch of the Yankees Red Sox wildcard game just, uh, you know, a couple months ago. And so, um, sad, it always felt like with all of these cancer bouts, he would have to, you know, in recent years, take some time away from, from the team and the games, but it always felt like he came back. Right. And so it, it was sad to see that he would, he was gone, I guess, like the only other thing I'd say, I don't know if we ever talked about this, but like Tommy Heinsohn was the longtime Celtics broadcaster that passed away earlier this year. And it just feels, oh, maybe this is just part of getting old, you know, but like all the, the voices that like I grew up with are Tommy Heinsohn and, and Jerry Remy. And like, to have both of them gone in a year is, is sad. It, it's, uh, you know, I feel really lucky to have grown up rooting for teams that were really successful, but also had these like great announcers. And um, like you say, it's, it's one of those weird things that, they're just like parts of your life, you know? And like, not that i ever met like either of those guys and have no personal connection whatsoever to Jerry Remy, but yeah, he was the voice for 1998. You know, like that's pretty much like when you come to consciousness. there, when I came to consciousness as a sports, as a Red Sox fan. So like for my entire life, he's been like the voice of the Red Sox and um, yeah, very sad to see him go.
0: Yeah. Anyone who knows me knows that I hate most broadcasting duos I, I, or like you know, NFL college football, most of them just drive me up the wall. And I, I like to think it's because like guys like Jerry Remy and Don Arcell just set the bar super, super high for what's like a you know, a good they got a good banter, they're covering the game, they're giving me facts yeah. and they're like acknowledging when um or Refs are screwing up.
2: Yeah. Wow. <laughs> they were the best. We we, were, we we've been spoiled here. And so it really like in the in sense it's 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 sad, but it's also a, a moment to be like, well we're really lucky too. For sure.
0: All right, man. I think that's all we got for this week.
2: Happy Veterans Day to everyone out there.
0: Indeed. We'll see you.
1: We stay up all night on Garner Avenue, debating all the issues of the day. No agenda, not yet. Talking heads running around till we forget where it was we began. Some mornings you were with. Some mornings left your ego bruised. But what I wouldn't give for hope I used to find in a case of lion's head. Folks of different minds because even though it did not share, as we share all that American ideal Friends made over arguments In an early morning buzz Need an early morning buzz Learn the hard way But to those who would die upon that hill Quiet truth is better than a ram Somewhere along the line We seem to have forgotten Value sometimes being wrong. Some mornings you away, some mornings let your ego bruise. But what I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find in a, a case of lion's head and folks of different minds. Because though we didn't share opinions, we shared an American ideal. Friends made all the arguments. In an early morning buzz. I need an early morning bus There's hope behind the bluster Cause the mainstream Main Street may not sell It's full of folks just like you and me and When we have trouble seeing The human for the politics It's time to find a better way to disagree Some days you win, some days you'll leave your ego through But what well, I wouldn't give for, oh, by I used to find it, chase the lines here. Folks of different minds, because though we did not share opinions, we share that American ideal. Friends made all arguments, and another morning buzz, oh, what well, I wouldn't give the hope I used to find in a case of lion's head. Folks, of different minds. Because though we did not share opinions, we share that American ideal Friends made over arguments in an early morning buzz. I need an early morning buzz.